Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Bob, we are blessed by you. We're very grateful for your presence in our lives. Thank you. This year at First Baptist Church, we're striving to walk in the way of peace. We know that the peace of Christ that we can experience is one of the good shepherds. So, of course, we're going to have a shepherd's crook that's present here to remind us that our God is the good shepherd among us. These last weeks, we've been leaning into Jesus' call for us to be peace. Makers and not simply peacekeepers. We know, of course, that a peacekeeper is one who wishes to just keep things still. And yet, a peacemaker is one who actively engages and works for peace. And we know that peace and justice are intertwined. Let us listen carefully then. As we continue our march through the Sermon on the Mount, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This jaw-dropping set of commandments hinges on Jesus' lead-off statement. We'll take it in two parts. The first is the acknowledgement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is an ancient reference to something that we call the law of Hammurabi, which means very little to me, except that Jesus' acknowledgement of what everybody knows was actually intended to keep retribution from spiraling out of control. Let me give you an example. If someone punches you in the eye and injures you, you can't take their leg or their life or their livestock, or their homes, or their children. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was to actually set a boundary around the retribution that we might give to one another when we get hurt. This basic understanding was a rule that they lived by, and it also extended into courts of law. If something happened to you, you could only take that which which was taken from you. Now, frankly, it sounds like a good idea. Unless, of course, you consider that if we live our lives like this, as has been said before, we'll all be blind and toothless. The second part of Jesus' statement here just sounds ridiculous. Do not resist an evildoer. This makes no sense of us to those of us who look at Jesus' own life and ministry. 
Jesus himself did not seem to honor this rendering of this statement. Do not resist an evildoer. Jesus stood in the presence of evil. And he was certainly not a pushover. And yet our own understanding of that statement, which everything else hinges on, may be misshapen. A better rendering of this goes something like this. Do not try to get even. Or don't try to do something in return. Do not respond with evil, but overcome evil with good. And why not? Because if you do, you won't win. No one wins. You'll just be extending the game of hurt. Now most of us, frankly, are utterly lost when we try and make sense of what Jesus is saying here. And that's where most of us just check out. It sounds alien or impossible, so we stop listening. We stop trying to understand. And yet Jesus, after announcing and proclaiming what it looks like to make peace, he gives us three examples of how it can be lived out in our daily lives. So he gives examples that would have made sense to his hearers. But for us, we've got to lean into our understanding of that day and age if we're ever going to come away with our understanding of what it looks like to not return evil with evil. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, do not resist an evildoer. The translation is challenging there. And it does require better understanding, literally a renewing of our minds. Jesus is saying that we should dispel of the notion of getting even and instead seek to stop this cycle of hurt by not responding to hurt with more hurt. These three examples are ones that we've heard most of our lives. Turn the other cheek. If anyone sues you, Give them your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, we go the second as well. We know this. It's become part of our faithful vernacular. And yet many of us don't understand one bit of what Jesus is trying to say here. So what I'd like for us to do in these next few moments is to consider the context in which Jesus was saying things, beginning with that first most troubling statement. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Most of us throughout our lives have understood this statement to mean, just take it. And I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at at all. It's a strange detail, isn't it? The right and left cheek it makes me wonder if I'd need to brush up on my boxing skills which I have none. However, it does raise questions. Why the right and why the left? What is Jesus trying to convey here? Imagine for a moment someone standing in front of me and acknowledge that in Jesus' day and age, you did everything right and pure with your right hand. The left hand, and we'll get into that at a different day and age, we will take care of left 
handed items that were considered impure. The right hand is what you did things with. And so if you can imagine someone in front of you and someone throwing a punch or hitting someone else, then it becomes very challenging to hit someone on the right cheek. In fact, if you think about the physics, it seems really challenging. The only way to hit someone on their right cheek or right side would be to backhand them. So it raises the question, who do you backhand? You backhand those who are lower in the spectrum of status. The people that you would backhand were slaves, children, women, and Jews, especially if you were a Roman citizen or soldier. To be hit on the right side would be to be demeaned, to be treated as less of a person and to retaliate if you were slapped or hit in that way would be absolute suicide. The response, if you were to be hit in that way, was to submit. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, stand firm, offer the other cheek. For in doing so, the only way they can be hit in that moment is with a closed fist and a right hand, seeing the person as an equal, literally putting yourself in a position where your status rises to the one who just abused you. It was Jesus' way of saying, stand firm and courageous. Do not let someone else humiliate you or strip you of your personhood. By offering your other cheek, you are not responding with violence. You are standing up to them, making them see you as the person of worth that you are. If they hit you, they're going to hit you as an equal and the law stated that to be hit by an equal meant that you could be charged a significant fee. Do not return evil with evil. Be courageous. Stand strong. Arrange the circumstances so that the other person sees that you are a person of worth, that you are as a child of God. The second statement that Jesus says requires some understanding also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. So when we talk about being sued, we immediately think of a courtroom setting. And it's important to acknowledge that if someone is suing you for your coat, your outer garment, it's gotten pretty bad. You don't sue somebody for your coat. You sue someone for what they've got stored away at home or for their livestock or for their property or for their values. Now this would have resonated with Jesus' hearers for they were the least of these. They would understand that if someone was suing you for your cloak, 
then you were destitute. You were the poorest of the poor, and the powers that be were absolutely putting you in a position of powerlessness. What does Jesus say? If someone sues you for your coat, give them your cloak or your inner garment as well. For to do so would be to demonstrate that you are utterly powerless. You would be making yourself naked in front of others. And the sin of which was on those who had caused your nakedness. Jesus was saying in that moment that if someone was trying to abuse you, and to take advantage of you and to shame you that you were to arrange and to frame those circumstances so that that which was abusing you might be made known to all. For the sin would have been on the one who would cause those circumstances. Again, Jesus' response to evil and abuse and neglect and violence stand strong. Be courageous. Do not respond to evil with evil. The third, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. God's people in Israel, the Jewish people, lived in an occupied land, occupied, of course, by the Roman government. Around them were Roman soldiers that could inflict harm and violence by force any time they wished. The roads, of course, established by the Romans, which they were, of course, known for, had mile markers. One of the reasons they had mile markers was so that the Roman authorities did not abuse the local populace. The Romans could spot a farmer, an individual, a woman, a child, take off their pack, their heavy equipment, and make a local carry it for them. The Roman government, though, knew that if the Roman authorities was always placing the burden on the occupied people, then that would create potentially great unrest and things could spiral out of control. So the Roman government placed a limit on how much the Roman authorities could ask of the local population. They dictated that they could ask the locals to walk only one mile with their equipment and their stuff. If it went beyond one mile, if it went into the second mile, the Roman authorities would clamp down on the soldiers and the soldiers would be punished. What does Jesus say? Someone forces you to go one mile, presses you into service to do their work for one mile, go a second mile. Again, Jesus is saying, stand strong. Be courageous. Do not respond to evil with evil. But make certain that those that are hurting you and hurting others are seen for who and what they are. This, brothers and sisters, is what it looks like to do kingdom justice. So when we see more clearly what Jesus is telling his followers to do, a different kind of picture begins to emerge. 
Maybe Jesus isn't so weak or milk toast after all. I know it's a term that I needed to do a little research on, but it's the word that comes to mind when I read this passage and how it has been described and taught to me over, my, over the years of learning and growing in the faith. The word milk toast comes from an old comic strip about a man by the name of Casper Milktoast. Casper Milktoast is an individual who lives up to his name. He's timid. He's a pushover. He's weak and timid. One of the images, it's a one-frame cartoon from the early part of the 20th century. He's out in the rain in the city. People are going by. The rain is coming down hard. The wind, he's miserable and he's drenched. And a thought bubble comes up before him and says, Now I'm only going to wait one more hour out here in the rain to meet you, to give you, and let you borrow $100. So this image of an individual who was not strong who was weak, who was timid. Milk toast is a less than savory dish that some of you all may have eaten. It's literally a piece of toast in a bowl with warm milk poured over top. It sounds disgusting. Like a nothing kind of meal, which accurately captures and describes how this teaching for many of us feels milk toast. And yet, when we look at Jesus' life and ministry and then apply that to Jesus' own words here, Jesus looks nothing like milk toast. Hell, this is... This isn't something vague or theoretical. We come in contact with evil, violence, abuse, and bullying all the time. And it does raise the question how we're supposed to respond when we feel this way ourselves. When we are struck, when we are humiliated, when we are pressed into service by a bully and an oppressive force. I get it. I do. But still, I, can't, I have a hard time imagining that when we get hit or hurt, are we really supposed to not hit back? I mean, are you kidding? I've been raised that when we get hit, we are to hit back. And when we hit back, we're to hit back harder. Isn't that what we teach our children? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. This is a familiar phrase to some of us who grew up in the 80s. I'm referring to the, the movie that came out in the early 80s, Karate Kid. It's been um, brought back to life in a series called Cobra Kai. Those of you all that remember the story, remember that Cobra Kai was a school of karate, a dojo that was a collection of the bullies, led by a teacher who was mean-spirited, cruel, and vicious. And the motto of that school of karate was to strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Now, when this came out some 35, 36 years ago, 
This sounded villainous, didn't it? It sounded cruel. These were the antagonists set against the plight of the hero. And yet, today this sounds like good practice. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Sounds like the way of the world that we live in. Our world. A world where we might experience hurt or pain from any corner of our community, our families, or the place in which we live. So we live afraid. We choose to carry weapons to hurt others, to make us feel strong, so that if it comes to it, we'll strike first, we'll strike hard, and there will be no mercy. It's just how things are, we tell ourselves. And yet we also need to acknowledge that not only is this the way of our world in which we live in, it was also the way of the world that Jesus' disciples lived in. It was not only their way of engaging in the world around them, but it was also Peter's preferred method. Oh, y'all remember this story. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is arrested It's an armed conflict. It's a violent encounter. They've come to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night and they've brought swords. How does Simon Peter respond? He has a sword. He draws it and strikes one of them, cutting off his ear. Jesus' response? Put your sword back in its sheath. Put down your sword. Put down your sword, Peter. Do not strike. Do not strike back. And it sounds absurd. It sounds milk toast. It sounds un American. Which is fine, of course, because Jesus was an American. In all fairness, I can imagine Peter didn't like Jesus' rebuke much either. So let's ask the real question here. Let's ask, why? Why would Jesus command us to respond to hurt and violence in such a way? If not the sword, why in a non-violent kind of way? And it's because the way of the peacemaker, the way of Christ, the way of the kingdom of God is to break the cycle of hurt. It's to elevate human dignity and worth. It's to not overcome evil with evil. Jesus is spelling out what it looks like to be a peacemaker. And it is so radically different than the world in which we live in that we would rather completely ignore it and disobey it than we would ever try to walk in the way of the one who leads us 
Our world programs us to respond to hurt and violence with hurt and violence. And yet Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is imploring us, is commanding us to live differently. Which means, of course, that we need to be reflective about what we are afraid of. And if we really believe that Jesus is strong enough to overcome evil with good And that God's power of resurrection is also the power of redemption. If we don't believe those things, then of course we are to strike back with a sword. But if we believe what Jesus is saying and choose to declare him Lord of all, then we'll walk in the way of peace. We'll strive to be peacemakers and will be called children of the Most High God. This is what it looks like to make peace. It's to be courageous because you have worth. Just as Jesus demonstrated and lived out. Look at all those places where he encountered hurt and pain, oppression and bullying and death. And each and every moment... He showed strength and resolve. He did not run away, but he did not strike back either. He's teaching and conveys here in his own life how he did not flee, but stood his ground and reframed the moment with creativity and imagination so that good and truth could come from hurt. Because Jesus demonstrates how it is possible to respond to evil without becoming evil ourselves. To break the cycle. Just as Jesus did. Framed in this way, peacemaking doesn't look or feel milk toast after all. So I would implore you to reject that notion that to be faithful means to be a pushover. Because Jesus was anything but that. Instead, Jesus' peacemaking direction and commandments is radical and revolutionary. Many of you all know my great love of baseball. Charlie White allowed me to borrow the movie 42, the story of Jackie Robinson first black man to ever play Major League Baseball because of the efforts of Branch Rickey, the general manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1940s. In the, mo- in the movie, they depict the encounter that Branch Rickey had when he told Robinson that he wanted him to be the first black man to play baseball. And at this meeting in the movie, Robinson asked Branch Rickey, he says, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back? No, no, replied Rickey. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. 
Follow a curse with a curse and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say the black man lost his temper, that the black man does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting and running and fielding, only that. We win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our Savior, you're going to have to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? Robinson replies, you give me a uniform, you give me a number on my back, and I'll give you the guts. We may not like Jesus' commandment, and it's fair to acknowledge that, but it's not justification to disobey him. When I look at my own life and how I respond to getting hit, whether it's physical abuse or more likely words and strategies and scenarios intended to hurt, when those moments have happened to me, I can tell you authoritatively that I'm not inclined to be a peacemaker because it's not in my nature. I don't want to adopt this rule that Jesus sets out for us. (laughs) And of course I don't. Which is precisely why at the moment of our baptism we die to ourselves and the nature that we inherited. The truth is, we face grave consequences if we don't take our baptism seriously. Y'all, our baptism is about death. Our death. Death to ourselves, to those selves that want to carry a sword and to strike first, strike hard, and no mercy. At our baptism, we are called to die to that self so that we can rise to walk in newness of life, a life walking in Christ Jesus' own footsteps. It's about death, y'all. Our own death. And the new life that we get from Jesus plays by dramatically different rules. At the point of our baptism, it's as though Jesus is asking us, you got to know what you're getting yourself into. You're going to experience abuse. They're going to get you to react. They're going to try and hurt you. And when you do, they've got you. So are you up for it? My prayer is that we will be found to say back to Jesus that if given new life, if given a chance, we'll give God the guts of our obedience. It didn't just happen at the moment of our baptism. We must be reminded of our baptism each and every morning that we rise Each and every day, we must declare two things. First, that we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and Master. And second, 
that for us to live that out, we must die to ourselves. Let us pray. God, we do not like your teaching. We would absolutely prefer to strike first, to strike back, to strike hard, to play by the rules of the nature that we've inherited. But God, in Jesus, you show us what it looks like to be strong, courageous, to break the cycle of hurt. In turn, God, we pray that we might have the courage to die to ourselves so that we might be raised to newness of life, a life best lived in you, because that's what it looks like to make peace, to be called your children. Give us that courage now, Father, as we are reminded of our baptism. For it's in Jesus' name, the peacemaker, that we pray these things. Amen. What better time and what better moment to declare the lordship of Jesus Christ than right now? What better time to say yes to this group of faithful individuals who wish to hold one another accountable and to always be pointing to Christ Jesus, then this very moment, I will be down front to hear your declaration, to also sit with you in silence as we reflect on these hard words and to summon the courage to meet the moment. share the feeling y'all one baptism was enough the water was cold it was bracing I needed help coming up to catch my breath the water seems to slow me down as I try and walk in the way of peace one baptism was enough I'm not so sure I want to continue to die to my very nature and yet that is what and who we are called to be in Christ Jesus. If you're not up to it, if you're not up for it, that's fair. Claim it. Let's make sure that we don't draw Jesus' ire, which of course was hypocrisy. Those who claim Christ Jesus and yet choose to avoid baptism, the declaration of Christ's lordship, and the willingness and obedience to die to ourselves. 
Thank you for being present. We make an effort to gather together because there is power in the companionship of other believers to hold Christ's words with authenticity and honesty and integrity so that the Holy Spirit might work in us inside and out. I'm grateful for your presence, for our guests and for our newcomers, for those who've come to bear witness to the declarations our young people have made. That should inspire each of us to die to ourselves and to live in Christ. We also, of course, celebrate Bob. And we are so very grateful for your years of faithful service to us, demonstrating and modeling to us what commitment and fidelity looks like. Thank you, Bob. I hope that the conclusion of our time together, you'll find, Bob, that you will give him a good hug from a distance, a big old smile from seven feet away, a note of encouragement later to let him know by text or email how much we love you. Also, I would like to make sure that our young people receive a record of this moment so that you can put it up in your room to be reminded each and every day of how we must declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if Morgan will come forward, as well as Cadence and Lucy, I will give these to you. Find them also afterwards. Let them know how proud we are of them for these moments. We haven't moved in the last hour, and you're probably feeling it. That's what happens when we don't move. We want to stay sedentary. Being a part of a life of Christ means movement. So let's stretch it out and stand now. It's hard to keep moving, but that's what we are called to do. Jesus models for us what it looks like to move and to move so faithfully. In just a moment after we receive the benediction, we will go outside to continue our faithfulness in the world in which we live. We'll sing a song together so that the sidewalks and our city and town might know that we are striving to be faithful, certainly not perfect, but faithful and obedient as we walk in the way of peace. At the conclusion of our time together, we do hope that you'll look around and not only see one another, but allow yourselves to be seen. As you leave, you'll note that there are offering plates that can receive your most generous gifts that enable us to continue to do the work that we feel God has called us to do. Thank you for your gifts in advance. They are fuel to help us walk in the way of peace. Now to our God, who by the power of work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. To God be the glory in the church and to Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And let us exit so that we can sing together.